0: Welcome to the Essay for FAs Asset Allocator Podcast, a series that addresses issues of current interest to financial advisors, including ETFs, asset allocation, and the economy. I am your host, Gil Weinrich of Seeking Alpha, and today I am honored to welcome onto my show a man who needs no introduction, who is known to most of our listeners, and that is journalist Jonathan Clements. For many years, the personal finance columnist for the Wall Street Journal, the author of several books on managing one's money, and the founder and editor of Humble Dollar, which takes an honest, long-term view of the challenge of saving and investing. Jonathan Clements has long offered a voice of sanity in the financial media, offering investors perspective on how to make money and how not to lose it. I thought it would be especially valuable to get his perspective on where financial advisors fit into this picture, how they can help their clients earn and not lose, how they can remain viable in a marketplace always looking to squeeze them out. Indeed, how they can add value to the clients they serve. Jonathan, welcome to our show. Hey Gil, thanks for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it the honor is ours. Let me just start with the most challenging question first. You're a veteran personal financial journalist. The basic perspective of the personal finance media has long been that advisors are a cost, not a benefit. What is your perspective on this question?
1: Well, I think my perspective over the years has shifted. Uh, When I started out as a financial journalist, I was of the view that, you know, with enough education, most investors could get it done on their own. More than three decades later, Gail, I no longer believe that. (laughs) I believe that a significant portion of the population, I would say a majority of the population, do need some sort of handholding in order to make sensible financial decisions. It's not because this stuff is complicated. I think that managing money is really pretty simple. It's it's a behavioral issue more than anything else. Most People simply can't get it done. They don't have the discipline to save enough. They don't have the tenacity to sit still during market declines. They simply don't have the interest to spend half an hour researching on the internet to find the answer to the questions that they have. And so that's where a good financial advisor can be enormously helpful. Uh, So I don't discount the value of financial advisors. I think there are two crucial questions are, one, what sort of value is the financial advisor delivering? And two, what's it going to cost the consumer?
0: Well, we'll address some of those. Maybe I'll start with what seems to me to be the fundamental claim you've made, which is the behavioral challenges. In your judgment, what are the biggest barriers to the wise management of our financial resources?
1: I would say that probably one of the biggest issues, the biggest obstacles out there is this whiny child in our financial lives known as the financial markets. Every trading day, the stock market screams and yells for our attention. Sometimes it invokes greed in investors. Sometimes it invokes fear. But whatever is going on, we are obsessed. We are absolutely obsessed. And Wall Street is happy to feed that obsession. And indeed, The way financial advisors operate is really geared towards this obsession. Most financial advisors do not charge to help you decide when to claim Social Security or whether you should pay down debt or what sort of home you should buy. Instead, most financial advisors are compensated based upon your investment activity, whether it's charging a percentage of your portfolio's value or charging you a commission every time you buy or sell. So all the focus is on the financial market and on making sure that people participate in some way or another, in some form or other. And yet, when it comes down to it, that, I would argue, is probably the simplest of the financial tasks and the task where advisors can add the least value. And instead, the real struggle is these broader financial issues. Things like when to claim social security, what size house to buy, whether I should pay down debt, what estate planning documents I should have. Two, how do I get myself to get these things done? We're talking here about coaching people towards better financial behavior. And three, how do I build a financial life that is meaningful to me, that is fulfilling to me, that makes my life better? And those three areas are the areas where I think. A good financial advisor can add a lot of value, and yet and yet, we're constantly distracted by
0: this whiny child known as the financial markets. That is a nice answer to your two questions. I'd like to explore it further by using a metaphor that you've used before, which is that in contrast to this sort of ersatz way of doing financial advice through the prompting of the market, really, you have to look at the paycheck. So how should we be thinking about carving that up? Yeah, when we think about our financial
1: lives, you know, we want to think about them holistically. We want to put all of the pieces together. We shouldn't be thinking about our portfolio on the one hand and the debts we have on the other hand, and our estate planning on the other hand. It said somehow we need to bring it all together. And the central organizing principle is our human capital, our income earning ability. That paycheck we get. Every two weeks or every month or the lack thereof. And why is, why is our paycheck so important? Well, it really does four crucial things for us. First of all, our paycheck provides the money that we can put away for the future. It is our source of savings. Second, our paycheck Drives our asset allocation. We can think of that steady paycheck over four decades as the equivalent to earning interest from a bond. We should then design our portfolios to complement that paycheck. When we're early in our careers and we have 40 years of paychecks ahead of us, it is rational To diversify that paycheck by investing heavily in stocks as we approach retirement the day that paycheck goes away that's when we need to start adding bonds in our portfolio so that we have income from bonds to replace the income that used to come from our paycheck third our paycheck drives our ability to take on debt it is rational early in our adult lives to take on substantial debt because we know that we've got 40 years of paychecks ahead of us to service those debts and get them paid off by the time we retire. And fourth, our paycheck drives our need for insurance. It's the reason that we need to have disability insurance. It's the reason that we need to have health insurance. It's the reason, if we have financial dependence, why we need to have life insurance. So the central organizing principle and really the start of any meaningful conversation about money should be focusing on that paycheck or the lack thereof.
0: That is convincing to me. I've argued for similar things. I agree with you. So let me talk about the other side of this now, which is the investor's goals. Do investors generally have clarity about their goals? And do they require help in ascertaining their long-term objectives?
1: So when you talk to investors, typically investors will have four broad goals. They want to be okay if there's a financial emergency, Uh, they want to buy a house, they want to put the kids through college if they have a family, and they want to retire in comfort. So those are the four big goals. But specifying those four goals in and of themselves is not enough. Reeling off that list of four goals does not make me excited, it won't make you excited, and it won't make the typical investor excited. So somehow – Somehow we have to bring these goals to life for the investor. We need to figure out what does retirement mean to them? What are they going to do with their retirement? What's going to make them excited about retirement? Simply, what are their aspirations for their children? What is it that's going to get them pumped so that they fund that 529 plan or they fund that Coverdell Education Savings Account? What a good advisor should be doing is trying to figure out why these goals are meaningful for the client so that the client is excited enough to make the sacrifices today necessary to achieve those goals in the future. You know, Our financial lives are a constant battle between the whiny demands of our current self and the needs of our future self. And somehow, somehow, we need to motivate ourselves to sacrifice today so that 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years down the road, our future self isn't going to be sitting there and saying, boy, I was so dumb when I was younger, and I should have been saving a whole lot more money. And it all starts with not just listing goals, but fleshing them out, making them exciting so that we are motivated to do what is necessary to achieve
0: those goals. Eminence, good sense. Now, you follow public policy aspects of finance as well. What's your take on the reliability of Social Security? The concerns about Social Security are really a reflection
1: of a larger issue, which is the major demographic problem that we have. You know, We have a situation now, and it's going to get increasingly worse in the years ahead, where we have too few workers and too many people who are dependent on them. And you know, one form of that dependence is you know, the need for today's workers to pay Social Security payroll taxes in order for retirees to get their monthly benefit. And somehow or other, we need to bring this demographic imbalance back into balance. And the way we do that is to find ways to encourage people to stay in the workforce for longer. And that might mean raising you know, the starting age for social security. It might be creating tax incentives to encourage employers to keep on older workers. It might be creating incentives for the workers themselves to stay in the workforce for longer rather than heading off to retirement. At what is currently a median age of 62, we need to get people to stay in the workforce for longer. And if we do that, all kinds of economic issues go away. But somehow or other, we need to get away from the situation where we have too few workers and too many retirees. It's it's fundamentally an issue of we don't have, and soon it'll be far worse, we don't have enough people producing the goods and services that society needs. And that's the problem that we need to address. It's a tricky one when it comes to Social Security because there are so many Americans who have done a terrible job of saving for retirement, and thus they are almost wholly dependent on that monthly social security check. So the transition period, it's going to be really tricky, but somehow or other, we've got to get people to stay in the
0: workforce for longer. You're right. From the statistics I've seen, at least half the population is at risk of not matching their pre-retirement income. Let's now move to markets, which is sort of opposite of, you, know, you advise us against being so distracted. But this bull market over 10 years now has been a doozy. Do you think investors are becoming complacent, seeing double-digit returns as some sort of entitlement? I have not seen the complacency and the overconfidence and the
1: exuberance that I recall back in the late 1990s. That doesn't mean it's not there. All, All I see is anecdotal evidence, just like everybody else. It's really hard to know what investors' expectations are. I think the problem with the line of questioning, though, is that if we start talking about the exuberance of the market or the exuberance of investors, is that we end up making market timing decisions. We start to say, oh, I don't want to be in the market because it's too frothy. I'm going to change my asset allocation. You know, we know that is the road to ruin. Once you start to time the market, you know, things are only going to go badly. So what we need to do in that situation is to reframe the question we shouldn't ask is the market heading for a fall instead we should say you know what is it that we control and should we be making changes in the things that we can control so what can we control we can control how much we save and spend we can control how much risk we take We can control what we pay in investment costs. We can control what we pay in taxes. And we can control our own behavior. So when people say to me, what's going to happen to the financial markets? I say, if you ask a stupid question, you're going to get a stupid answer. And most of the time, the best thing to do is to forget about predicting the market and start to think about risk. And if there's a serious chance that you're going to panic and sell, should the market happen to drop 20 or 30%, and probably you're taking too much risk. And so the answer isn't, a, you know, what do I think is going to happen to the market? You know, the question you're trying to answer is, how would I react if it fell? And, and that's a risk question, it's not a
0: performance forecasting question. That is the correct way to frame it. I'm so glad you said it. I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you for that. Let's move on to a macro topic because it concerns all investors, even if we have no control over it, like you were just saying, the Fed in its accommodationist policies right now, is it playing a constructive role in markets? Oh, Gil. <laughs> I have no idea. I, you know, it's, uh, again, you sort
1: of end up in this short-term guessing game and you know, maybe they're helping, maybe they aren't. But, you know, spending time thinking about such issues isn't going to make me a better manager of my own money. So I really resist thinking thinking about the Fed, or thinking much about the economy, or thinking too much about uh, market valuations. And before you even think about asking about it, you know, or thinking about what's going to happen in the 2020 presidential election. I mean, one of the things on Humble Dollar that I try, you know, with every bone in my body to avoid is addressing political issues. I mean, we live in a poisonous political environment. And whenever any of my contributors suggest writing about politics, you know, I just cut them right, right off there. It's like, nope, we're just not going to go there because all we're going to do is, is, you know, take a website that I like to think celebrates, you know, sensible money management and thinking long term, and we're just going to
0: cr- create some political f- food fight. And I'm desperate to avoid that. I keep provoking all the best answers. I I just, (laughs) I love this. This is good. People, especially since, uh, you know, our audience is accustomed to articles and opinions on the Fed. Hearing what you have to say is an extremely valuable perspective. Thank you for that. We have time for one more question, and I'm just going to ask you. Based on your long experience, could you perhaps offer an anecdote of maybe uh, something you've seen where uh, the outcome turned out better than might have been expected because of somebody actually taking the bull by the horns, maybe with some behavioral coaching and so forth? It's an interesting question, Gil, but I'm not going to answer it. Instead, I'm going to
1: answer a different question by telling you a story about my own family. Uh, So in recent weeks, I have been looking into my great-great-grandfather. Uh, my great-great-grandfather lived in Liverpool, England. Uh, He died 132 years ago. And when he died, newspapers say that he was one of the richest men in England. He left the equivalent uh, in current dollars of about $47 $47 million. I actually <laughs> I played around uh, with my financial calculator and discovered that uh, if his heirs back in 1888 had taken that, the money that they inherited and put it in stocks and earned some percentage points a year more than inflation, that today the family fortune would be worth $270 mil- billion, which is more than the combined network for Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. But instead, the money was spent in two generations. So not only did none of the money pass through to me, it didn't even pass through to my mother and her two brothers. But here's the, here's the, the, the happy part of the story, which is even though the great family fortune was completely wasted, my mother's generation all proved to be good managers of their own money when faced with the fact that they weren't inheriting anything what did they do they rolled up their sleeves and they had successful careers and you know they didn't build great fortunes but they all had financial success so in many ways inheriting money is poisonous to people's financial ambitions and not inheriting money is great for their financial ambitions and when these great family fortunes disappear
0: the result is actually not always so bad. That is a truly inspiring story. These are words of truth, holistic advice, behavioral coaching, uncommon sense. This is the path to added value for financial advisors. Go to Humble Dollar, read his books and acquire his unique wisdom for yourselves. Jonathan Clements, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Hey, it's been my pleasure, Gil. Thanks for having me on your show. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast of value, consider passing it on to one other advisor. Also feel free to contact me at gill at seekingalpha.com with any feedback. This is Seeking Alpha's Gil Weinrich.